Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. We are really building the next wave of coffee culture, which is rooted in a holistic way of approaching coffee, which means appreciating, respecting the people, the community, and the culture that surrounds the bean. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Layers. Great storytelling has tons of them. As restaurateurs, we create these layers through food, beverage, and ambiance to draw our guests into our world. Today, we take a trip into Sarah Nguyen's world, and we'll learn how the vendors we purchase from can say something about who we are and what we believe. That change can happen one coffee cup at a time. So, yeah, my parents came here around 1980, and we're backtracking. They escaped Vietnam after the war, and when they escaped, they were like 18 years old, right, when they first started to escape, because it took many, many tries to try to find a boat, to try to, like, make it to the shore, and then eventually spent about two months on that boat and then landed at a refugee camp in Hong Kong. And they did all that when they were teenagers. And when they eventually came to the United States, Boston, like they were kids, right? They didn't meet until they came to Boston. So they each came here alone and they each were the only ones from their families who came here. So they were really kids who were alone, maybe had a friend on the boat or a cousin, but really the only one from their immediate family. And so growing up, I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. My mom, she's always worked in a laundromat. And then eventually she bought and started her own laundromat. And my dad was a house painter and then eventually started his own floor sanding company. So I'd say the first thing I learned from them was an incredible work ethic. They both worked so much because they had to, right? So I'd say number one thing is work ethic. And then I'd say one more thing I want to add is one thing I learned from watching them is really character. I mean, we were always like from humble backgrounds, right? So we were like financially, economically, socially humble. They're better off now, but they're not flossy or flashy at all. So two things, an incredible work ethic and always remaining humble. When you went to college, you focused on Asian American studies. I've got a buddy that graduated like 10 years ago in linguistics. And when I asked him why, I was like, like, what on earth are you going to do with that? And he goes, it's just something I'm passionate about. Right. And I look at Asian American studies in kind of the same way, right, where there's no trajectory there. There's no specific career path. And so I'm wondering, why did you choose that focus? And what did you think your career path would be at that time when you made that choice? Yeah, that's a great question. My parents also had the same question, like all four years after When I was in high school, I became really politically active and radicalized. I joined a youth activist group that was actually housed and sponsored by the Asian American Studies Program 
at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, UMass Boston. So my consciousness was already sparked and I was already organizing rallies with other high school students, organizing conferences and workshops to talk about and unpack social injustices and racism and systems of oppression. And so at that age, when I was thinking about the next step, I really want to forward my learning around activism, community empowerment, community organizing, and social justice. And that naturally led me to apply to a bunch of Asian American studies programs on the West Coast. And so I got in eventually to UCLA. At that time, Josh, I wasn't thinking about where will I be working in 10 years? What I was thinking about is how do I become a stronger person? Like, how do I deepen my sense of self? How do I sharpen my critical thinking? How do I build the biggest, most powerful brain I can? And I felt like Asian American studies allowed me to do that because it gave me the tools to unpack. It gave me the tools to think critically. It gave me the tools to research and dig up data. It gave me the tools to synthesize. And I felt like these were just tools that would help me be a successful person in the world. So I really had no idea what my actual profession would be. But all I knew was that at that time, I was like super focused on just empowering myself as an individual. And I found that through Asian Legacy Studies. It's a super interesting dichotomy, right? Because everybody gets an education to get a job. And you got an education to educate yourself. (laughs) It's interesting, though, because most people do that later in life. I flew through college, like got done hard stop at four years, got my degree in marketing, graduated with a 2.13, like barely made it out, made a D in my final economics course. That was all I needed to graduate. And I was on my way because I wanted a job. And then educating myself became a priority much later in life, in my 30s, where you become more self-taught. And so it's beautiful to hear that you took that experience and used it for what I think it was truly intended for, which is not employment, it's for self-betterment. Yeah. And I would say that is not just from the major. I think undergraduate experience in general needs to be reframed as an experience to find your and deepen your sense of self, not to get a job. And I knew this as an undergrad because I was like unpacking the system and society. And I was like, it is a lie to tell all these young undergrads that like, you have to know what you want to do right now. You have to pick a major that would directly lead into a career because that doesn't always happen, right? The the two things are actually not always related. And some people don't know what they want to do. And even when I mentor other people, I would just say, if you don't know what you want to do as a career, then focus on what you want to learn as an individual, what skills you want to sharpen as a person, and then take those courses and find that major. But I think it's just too much pressure to tell young people you have to pick a major that would directly lead to a career because it doesn't always work out that way. I want to make the leap from Asian American studies to the Asian American experience. I'm probably the whitest person you'll ever meet. So (laughs) for me, I got so much value out of hearing you speak in the past about the Asian American experience and how it parallels Vietnamese coffee. Because sometimes there's knowing and then there's understanding, Mm. just like there's hearing Mm. and there's listening. And when you parallel the two together, it created a ton of resonance for me. And I'm hoping you can unpack that here now. Yeah. This year, last year, with just like the heightened anti-Asian racism, there's definitely a parallel between how people engage 
and treat Asian food and beverage culture with a direct correlation to how they engage and treat Asian people and Asian lives, right? There's a constant pattern to devalue Asian food and beverage, to demean Asian food and beverage, to really render Asian food and beverage invisible on the margins of just like not worthy, right? Like even simple things like why is that bowl of pho so expensive? It should be $6. Like green food should not be like $16, so it should be cheap, right? But that perception, that framing of Asian food and beverage culture as cheap, that means you're valuing the people behind that product and that culture as also cheap, right? Because ultimately when it comes to a plate that you're paying for, it's not about is it pho, like a Vietnamese dish, it's about what are the qualities of ingredients? How long was it prepared, right? Is it like a single origin? Like, is it locally produced? Is it organic? But no one thinks about that. They're so quick to frame Asian food and beverage culture and by default, Asian people as cheap and unworthy of elevating, right? And the same thing has been happening with Vietnamese coffee. Today, people are so fixated on the narrative that Vietnamese coffee is cheap. Vietnamese coffee is not specialty. Vietnamese coffee is instant coffee. And yes, while there is truth to that, Joshua, because of systems that humans have created, how do we get beyond that, right? And so if we don't change our perspective and narrative, like, well, can this cheap product actually be specialty? Can we convert from cheap farming to organic practices, biofertilizers, handpicking the ripe ones instead of grabbing all the ripe and unripe ones, right? Can we get a better product? Yes, of course. It's like with any product that you would treat, right? If you could get a better product, could they get a better wage? Yes. If they could get a better wage, can they get a better livelihood? Yes, right? And so, yeah, there is such a fixation on the parallels between devaluing Asian food and beverage culture and how that relates to devaluing Asian lives as unworthy of elevating their livelihoods. And Vietnamese coffee is number two behind Brazil in terms of an export, right? Correct. That's absolutely massive. One of the things I wanted to unpack for everyone, because I think everyone's familiar with Arabica, right? But Robusta is the principal type of coffee to come out of Vietnam. Can you talk about the differences between the two? And I'll talk about why I drink what I drink. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, in the coffee world, there are two main varieties. They're called Arabica and Robusta. So Robusta coffee beans naturally have two times the caffeine content than Arabica. So they're very, very strong, a great caffeine boost, great clean energy. And then Robusta beans also have double antioxidants, right, which would be great for things like joint pain, inflammation. And then Robusta beans also have 60% less fats and sugars, which speaks to its profile being very like dark chocolatey, nutty, bold, low acidic, right? So those are the main differences between Robusta and Arabica. And then from an agricultural standpoint, Robusta beans get their name because they grow very robustly, right? They grow in higher yields. And they're also much more of a resilient tree because they can be grown in many different types of climates and altitudes. Whereas Arabica beans need a very specific type of climate and altitude to be grown. And they're a bit more volatile where it's like you can have crop failure if there's like a really bad season. So those are some of the main differences between the two. Personally, I drink Robusta. I know about you because I drink True Grit. It's low acid and it's double the caffeine. It's really hard to beat that combination. But it's also like you save more money because you can drink less and get that energy. And there is like this common misperception that like, oh, Vietnamese iced coffee is too strong. It gives me the jitters. It gives you the crash, right? But really, Joshua, that is because of the preparation. If you're drinking Vietnamese coffee from a restaurant that may or may not be using Vietnamese coffee beans and then using like an inch thick of sweetened condensed milk, you're getting the crash in the sugar because they're masking 
the poor quality of the coffee whatever that they're using, which is oftentimes something like a Cafe Dumont. But actually, it's so clean, right? It's like almost like low-key Adderall. It's really weird. You get a nice, like you're wired. And if you just control your intake, you control your sugar, you're not going to get a crash. Well, I want you to walk me through your path to entrepreneurship. What were you doing prior to starting the coffee company? Prior to starting the coffee company, I was working as a full-time documentary filmmaker and journalist here in New York City. How did you get the money to fund the venture? Yeah, so I totally bootstrapped the company myself when I started. I'm a solo founder. I used some of my savings, which was not much at all, and a credit card. Racked it up to like $20,000. I launched in November of 2018. Didn't pay myself for a whole year and a half, didn't spend a dollar in advertising in all of 2019. And I was still freelancing basically on the side as I was building this company to support myself. And eventually we just gained so much natural organic traction, word of mouth marketing. Wall Street Journal published a story of on us in print and digital in the summer of 2019. And so from there, things started to take off. Where did you source the beans? I sourced the beans originally and currently from a family-owned farm in the lot Vietnam, and it was a relationship from my aunt. Actually, they were old friends. And then, are you roasting the coffee in Vietnam? No, we roast in Brooklyn. Now, I think that's really interesting. I led into that intentionally because <laughs> I think that the way you're roasting is really interesting in the way that it is a shared facility. Now, I would assume that not only does that reduce the expense, but you also have the opportunity to learn from each other, right? Yeah. Having a shared facility here in New York was really instrumental in us getting off the ground. Otherwise, I don't know how I would have roasted, right? And through the shared facility, I was able to learn how to roast. So I put myself through a roasting class. Today, I'm the only one who develops our roast profiles. And now we're in like another shared facility, which is great. And it's a very collaborative space where, you know, I'll meet other roasters who maybe I have a good friend at Ali who like roasts like Yemeni coffee, right? And then we'll talk about different ways of roasting and, or even with the facility owners, like Justin Howard, like they're super knowledgeable about coffee and any questions we have, we're always bouncing ideas back and forth. So definitely and grateful for the shared and collaborative space. What do potential customers see when they go to your website? People eat with their eyes, and our website's menu is the best opportunity to turn page views into paying guests. That's why I'm so happy to introduce PopMenu, the restaurant tool that turns more first-time guests into regulars. PopMenu is the secret weapon of some of the best restaurant owners and operators in the industry. It's a full digital solution, creating dynamic, interactive menus that hook your customers from the start with a mobile-friendly design. PopMenu gives us all the tools we need and puts the focus back on what matters most, our customers and our cuisine. With the changing landscape of our industry, we need tools that can serve the evolving needs of our restaurants. PopMenu can take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month. Plus, you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash full comp. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash full comp. I have an agenda. I have an agenda with every conversation I have. And the reason I wanted to have you on and the reason that I wanted all of the restaurant owners and operators to hear your story is because we specialize in storytelling. We storytell through food and beverage. And the best restaurants have the best stories. And those stories consist of layers. And so 
when you talk about your product, I truly believe that in bringing that in, regardless of what your cuisine type is, you're able to create a deeper experience for the customer, right? That's the difference between a $15 steak and a $50 steak is a story that's wrapped around it. And can you talk to me about the experience around coffee in Vietnamese culture? Because I do know that it holds a special place. Yes, it really does. And I'm really glad you emphasize the importance of story behind the product. And Vietnam has an incredible coffee culture, let alone coffee products. And I think for us, we are really building the next wave of coffee culture, which is rooted in a holistic way of approaching coffee, which means appreciating, respecting the people, the community, and the culture that surrounds the bean. We are moving beyond this wave of this pure extraction of the product from the country and not really ever knowing much about the source, right? Like how often do we talk about Ethiopian coffee culture or Colombian coffee culture or Brazilian coffee culture? Once the beans leave the country to come here, it all becomes about the extraction science of the bean, which is great. And I think that's done incredible things for the world of coffee and the science of coffee. But really for us, the next wave of coffee culture is going to be rooted in culture and communities. In this and really a vision of heritage coffee and paying homage to the source and the origins where the coffee comes from. And I just want to kind of like share the story and the power behind the movement that we're building around Vietnamese coffee, Josh, because as you know, we are really uplifting Vietnamese coffee as an origin, but also Robusta coffee as a beloved bean, which as you know, Robusta coffee has been explicitly and deliberately excluded from specialty third wave coffee culture in America. There has been this entire narrative that's been built that says 100% Arabica is superior, 100% Arabica is specialty, 100% Arabica is like the golden standard, right? But that's just the narrative. The beans are different. Beans don't live in hierarchy. And for us, we're not saying Robusta is better than Arabica. We're just saying it's time to be more inclusive of all the beans, because it's not just about the beans, Josh, it's about the people behind the beans. When an industry says Robusta coffee has no room in specialty coffee culture, they're saying that an entire group of farmers who are Robusta farmers in Vietnam and around the world, actually, you're basically saying you as Robusta farmers have no opportunity to elevate your livelihood through specialty coffee farming. You cannot get a better rate. You can only get a cheap coffee rate. And that is messed up. So really the mission that we're doing here is as we're elevating Vietnamese coffee culture and also more broadly robust coffee as a beloved bean, we are one, transforming the landscape of Vietnam through sustainable coffee farming. And we are unlocking the pathway for robust farmers all around the world to elevate their livelihood through bringing robust coffee into specialty coffee culture here. 75% of our coffee sales are robust coffees over our 100% Arabica coffee, which means people love robust coffee. And again, I'm not saying that there's no room for Arabica. I'm just saying people deserve diversity in offerings, in products, in ideas, in thoughts, right? And we shouldn't just promote one narrative that says 100% Arabica is the best. And if you're not drinking Arabica, then you're a bad coffee drinker. It's really elitist, but more so the negative impact this has on people on the other end of the supply chain is very damaging. And so we are opening up and unlocking a whole new world that elevates and celebrates the Vietnamese coffee and the beloved Robusta bean. Well, and let's talk about traction. So you started in 2018. How did things go in 2020? Was that like a huge direct-to-consumer movement for you? Yeah, it was a huge movement. Yeah, 2020, because we are primarily a direct-to-consumer brand, right? We don't have a brick and mortar. 
in 2020, we did experience growth, fortunately, and that has really catapulted us and allowed us to hire a team, support our farmers more, create more jobs internally. So we are seeing a lot of traction. And candidly, we've been tracking the growth of the Vietnamese coffee space in America by tracking new cafes, new Vietnamese coffee cafes. Um, it's growing rapidly. There are already Vietnamese franchises in Vietnam who are entering the global market and entering the U.S. market. So, for example, this one franchise called King Coffee from Vietnam just opened their first location in Anaheim, California about a month ago. They announced 22 more locations by the end of this year, and then they announced 100 locations by 2022. So what is happening, Josh, is these franchises, in addition to like Americans and first generations here who are opening their own Vietnamese coffee shops, they are expediting the growth of the Vietnamese coffee category and the movement, which will grow the awareness for Vietnamese coffee and Vietnamese coffee culture, which will just kind of continue to fuel this overall secular trend of Asian-inspired beverages in America, right? And that's products like matcha, like Thai tea, like boba tea, right? Asian flavors in America in general is a huge secular trend, and Vietnamese coffee is really the next major trend in there. I want to pivot to the personal a bit. I saw a feature that you had done on Cheddar, and it was highlighting you as an AAPI business owner. And I couldn't help but ask myself, I mean, you could define yourself as a woman, as a Vietnamese American, as the child of refugees, as an entrepreneur, the list goes on and on. But how do you see yourself and how do you want your story to be told? Yeah, I really see myself as a first generation born and raised Vietnamese American daughter, refugees, entrepreneur. And I say those things because I think it's really important to provide context to how I got here and my family's legacy and their journey is really, really important to how I show up today and what I'm building. At the same time, once people kind of grasp that concept or that context about me, I always want to be able to exist beyond those titles. Like, do I always want to say that I'm the child of refugees? Is that just like a really buzzy talking point that people want to bring up all the time? Of course, there's value in that. And like, I want to bring visibility to my parents' journey just through those three words. But I also want to be able to exist as just an incredible visionary entrepreneur, as a thought leader of the industry, as an innovator and a game changer of the coffee industry. I guess it's like other titles that speak to the work I'm doing without it being rooted in ethnic identity. So the people listening, I'm positive that the message resonates, that your story resonates on a deep level. And I'm sure that there are people wondering how to be an ally, how to be a change maker. The coffee itself is a vehicle to expose people to someone else's world. But in what other ways can we function as an industry, as allies and change makers to help push your initiative forward? The first thing I'd ask or propose is for people to really reevaluate the narratives they hold that can be harmful to other people along the entire supply chain. We don't exist in just a bubble, our own brick and mortar, our own roastery, our own city, our own state, our own country. The things we say, the narratives we hold on to and promote, it directly affects people all along the supply chain. So the first thing I do is to ask people to really question and revisit these narratives they hold. 
Because this leads into the world of gatekeepers, people who make decisions about which products to serve, which vendors to work with, which brands to bring into their shelves or to their doors. And just being really intentional about the decisions you make and how you are opening up access to be more inclusive or how you're really perpetuating a limited ecosystem that's rooted in just old narratives and gatekeeping. And the third thing then to build upon both of those things is just to like try our coffee serve our coffee. I've had so many people who, gatekeepers, whether they're retail buyers or restaurant owners who are like, uh, we don't really like Robusta. I'm like, are you really still spitting that narrative? Or they're like, oh, coffee is so crowded. We already have so much coffee. I'm like, yeah, but you literally don't have any roaster serving single origin coffee. People are really quick to stay fixated on old ways of thinking. And I just ask people to be more open-minded and to try something different. What are your goals over the next 12 to 24 months? What are you trying to accomplish? Hmm. Okay, so over the next 12 to 24 months, our number one goal is to continue growing our direct-to-consumer channel, right? That's still our primary mode of reaching people. We're not a brick and mortar. And so as a really digitally native brand, we're really excited about reaching people through storytelling, through digital channels like social media, like websites, like videos. Storytelling, as you know, because I come from a background of storytelling, is very, very important to me as well. And I think we're not a business that's building a product or a brand in an already popular category. We're basically building out a new category. We're basically moving the entire specialty coffee industry in the opposite direction. And so that effort takes a lot of education and storytelling. And so we're really focused on growing our business online because we can tell that story. At the same time, 12 to 24 months, we are warming up the retail channel currently, right? We're in about 40 independent grocery stores in New York City. As we reach people online, we want to also make our products more accessible on the shelves. And then also B2B. So we have certain B2B partners in food service, restaurants and cafes around the country. But to be honest, because of our really small team, we don't have a dedicated outbound person, or even a sales rep. So we're really trying our best to support the partners. And I think over the next 12 to 24 months, as businesses kind of come back in the post-vaccinated world, we want to be able to support our BB partners. I mean, to date, we have over 500 B2B inbounds, right? We get a lot of them. We're just not quite able to take on everyone right now. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Well, I think anyone who is a business owner during this time is really incredible and courageous and admirable. And I think one of the coolest things we have being restaurant owners or business owners is that we get to design a world in our vision. And that world can include things like how do we support people? How do we help people survive? How do we create opportunities to keep our staff on board? How do we select certain vendors that are women-owned or LGBTQ-focused or diversified. I think being able to make these decisions as business owners is really, really powerful because we get to design a world and ecosystem that can be really inclusive, but also high impact to the lives that we work with. It's about the people. Encouraging everyone to remember that at the end of the day, it's about the people. That's Sarah Nguyen. For more on Nguyen Coffee Supply, go to NguyenCoffeeSupply.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. 
A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kokel. You've been listening to Full Comp.